When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I will not go down under the ground because somebody tells me that death's coming round and I will not carry myself down to die. When I go to my grave, my head will be high. Let me die in my footsteps before I go down under the ground. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about Let Me Die in My Footsteps, a relatively obscure song from the Dylan canon, but an important one, is the editor-in-chief of Talking Points Memo, a site I've been reading for almost a quarter of a century now, Josh Marshall. Hi, Josh. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, I have been too. I got to say, as I mentioned, I've been reading TPM for you know almost 25 years now. Uh, it was the uh, Bush administration that really got me politically engaged, uh, probably not in the way they intended, but it did. <laughs> and I was searching for news outlets and I found TPM and it's just been uh, to me sort of ever north uh, all throughout uh, the, all the various things that we've seen in the past quarter century. And I can remember pretty early on, uh, you dropped like a Dylan line in one of your pieces, but you didn't say it was that like you didn't say mm-hmm. as Bob Dylan said quote bah, 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 bah. you just dropped something in and I remember my head snapped back and I went that, that, what, what are the odds that those were he just put those words together in that order that seems you know that it jumped out of me and then after I think the three or fourth time you've done it, you did it over a couple of years I went oh okay <laughs> this guy's clearly a fan so you know even then I was like oh even more sort of plugged in um, to to TPM and, and you specifically so uh, let's start at the beginning. Like, how did you become a fan of Bob? Well, you know, it's funny. I, it's hard, a little hard for me to, to answer because I, it was literally something that was around me from birth. Um, my, I had a biological father and a father who raised me, who was my dad, you know, really my dad. And both of them were big Dylan fans, even though they were both very, very different people. My biological father was a, an avant-garde jazz musician, uh, someone, you know, who kind of lived on the margins in all the ways that jazz musicians <laughs> do, right? And, uh, and my dad, the guy who raised me, uh, very different guy, but also a big Dylan fan. And um, so literally from as, as far back as I can remember, Dylan was just kind of a thing around me. And um, I have a, a recollection of seeing, uh, I was at my biological father's house and I see, seeing a new copy of Blood on the Tracks, which I guess must've been in 1975. Mm-hmm. Uh and I have another memory, and this memory may be one of those memory, a fake memory. They are kind of, you know, a, 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 mis, a, a sort of a melange of different yeah. things that I constructed into a memory. But at least <laughs> as it comes to me, was uh, my biological father and I, or my biological father, trying to sneak us in to what would have had to have been the Rolling Thunder Review. <laughs> Um, and you know, sneak us in gives you a sense of, you know, kind of that scene, right? <laughs> and we didn't get in. And, and like I said, it, this would have been, I would have been like, you know, four or five years old. Um, 
I don't have much doubt that the trying to sneak into something was a real memory. But in any case, so Dylan goes, you know, as as far back as as I can remember. Um, and then I probably it was in my early teenage years that I first started listening to Dylan as not just something your parents listen to and you're familiar with, but started listening to and started kind of having uh, some understanding of it myself, right? Uh, and got very into Dylan uh, in high school. And uh, I saw Dylan, I don't know, probably four or five times in the 80s. Oh, wow. Uh, which would be in high, in high school for me. Um, and then uh, I just continued on that track and uh you know the sort of funny thing as i was as i was thinking as i was sort of anticipating this discussion the sort of funny thing is is that i was basically a dylan fan and really a dylan fan you know from my early teenage years um and kept with it and then but then i dropped out of it for what ironically is the sort of the key period for the time in my life which is the resurgence period, right? <laughs> that I kind of, I sort of just fell out of it in the early 90s for whatever reason. I was in graduate school. I was starting my life, whatever. So uh, the last, um, you know, I, I, I dropped off just before he kind of, what is now seen as his, as his sort of the second half of his career really mm -hmm. started, right? In, mm -hmm. the, in, the, in the mid, late 90s. And and so I was so all of those kind of key albums that are really kind of you know firmly planted in the you know the landscape of Dylan's career from the late '90s and early aughts. I I missed all of that in 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 time right it, as it was happening, and then I plugged back in in the sort of the mid aughts. And then kind of, you know, so I was sort of off that train for a decade or a dozen years or something like that. And then got very, very deep into him again. Um, and obviously got back into all that stuff from the, you know, the sort of the, the late career resurgence stuff. Um, it may have been reading Chronicles was part of what kind mm. of pulled me in. I don't remember, you know, and there was also... Um, another you know there was that there was that documentary that that he did with scorsese no which you know home, which yeah. is which you know is obviously a, and and so that's kind of my that's kind of the history of my uh fandom so and i and I, so i've been very plugged into dylan again now for you know 10 15 years but really for my whole life as i've described Gotcha. Yeah. Um, it's sort of funny when he did that uh, Shadow Kingdom event earlier uh, this year, I guess it was last year at this point, where yeah. he was, it was like yeah. an online thing. And it was, it was the, the subtitle was The Early Songs of Bob Dylan. And there's a song from Oh Mercy in right. that collection right. from 1989. Right. <laughs> and you're right. like, right. that's right. how long he's been doing this, that 1989 yeah. can be called the early period. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's how long it goes. Um, so now you mentioned having seen him a couple of times in the 80s. So obviously you enjoyed it. You wouldn't keep going if you didn't enjoy it. But were you prepared 
for what you were going to see, because as a lot of people know, you know, you don't necessarily, he doesn't always deliver the show that you're expecting from saying, you know, another artist of his stature. He kind of, right, right, right. Um, I think I probably knew that going in about him and, and, and as I'm sure your audience knows the eighties are kind of, you know, broadly seen as the sort of a nadir of his career, basically both as, you know, both in original, uh, you know, song, you know, original work and also as a, as a live performer. Um, So I just, as I think a lot of Dylan fans, you just, you, kind of understand that about Dylan and you, you, you go there for what's, what he's going to provide on that day. And that's how you do it. Um, (laughs) and, uh, like I said, I probably, probably saw him, I don't know, four or five times, four or five, six times in the eighties. And then, uh, probably that many times again, uh, over the last, dozen years or so okay. so i've probably seen dylan i don't know at least a dozen times what? you know okay. in that in that general ballpark something like that obviously you're enjoying it you wouldn't be doing it for a dozen times if you're <laughs> if you're kind of like oh all right this is yeah yeah you know it's funny uh, i had this thing where uh i had i, I had tickets to to see him and you know i'm i'm I've had a reasonably successful career. I ha- I have the money where I can splurge every once in a while. So for this 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 tour, or you know, the portion of the t- basically when he when he started touring again, coming out of the pandemic, I had tickets literally at the Beacon Theater, like second row center tickets oh. that you spend a lot of money for, right? And I ended up not going. I sold them, um, and it was because it ended up being kind of right as Omicron was hitting New York city. Uh, and I was just sort of like, you know what? Like eh, I'm going to feel pretty dumb if after <laughs> all this, I, you know, I, I, I get sick. So anyway, that, that's my history. Uh, you know, seeing Dylan as a live performer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is there any particular era that you, you know, kind of listen to more? I don't say like more than others, but you find yourself listening to more than others. You know, at this point, I probably listen more to the to the late career stuff. You know, to some extent, what most people still see as the sort of the classic Dylan, the stuff from 1962 to 1966, that era, a lot of it is, is it can be hard to hear that stuff anew, mm. right? It's, it's so, you've heard it's not that you've heard it so many times. It's, it's, there's so much built up over it. It can, it can be hard, at least for me to hear it completely anew. Um, and, and I guess that's, that's especially, it's not so much for the stuff from that period. Uh, but at least the, the most, you know, the, the, the dozen or so songs that, almost everybody in our, in our society knows, you know, the, the, not Dylan people, but you know, the kind of the big, big songs, but I've, you know, I have, I've always been pretty eclectic. I have actually, even though I'm, I'm, I'm not Christian, I'm Jewish. I've, I've always been really into his Christian period music, which, (laughs) which, which many people are not. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's actually greatly underrated. Um, So I, I kind of just range all over the place. I, I don't, have um I, I don't have one you know kind of one era that i like over over others 
I know when you when you are dropping lyrics into your tweets or your posts on on the site, like is that stuff that you're just pulling out from memory, or are you you kind of like, oh, I want to? Are you kind of searching to put a quote in there, or is it just your you have? No, no. When I when I do that, I just have I I have a I I have a I have a good memory. I I I just have I just it's it's never some. I mean, there are other times where I research things, but there are just. you know, th- there's um, there's just quotes you have that have right. that that have a, a certain significance or kind of key into a certain a certain uh, you know they're almost like memes in a sense as yeah. we've come to kind of think of them that they they key into they they uh, they key into a whole set of ideas or a whole kind of response to something about life or something. So those are always just things that kind of come into my mind at the moment. Yeah, I mean, when you're you're so often having talking about some politician, the phrase, and you've used this a couple of times, he can't help it if he's lucky. You know, that's the <laughs> that phrase is so perfect for so many politicians yeah, that yeah, it yeah. finds its way into your post. I've read at least a couple of times. It's like, yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty much the way. Uh, the best way to describe it, absolutely. Yeah, so. yeah, totally, um, totally. <laughs> well, okay. So I said, ironically enough, uh, we're going to be talking about one of his earliest songs, one of his from that early period again, which is "Let Me Die in My Footsteps." Now, this was a song that was originally recorded for the Freewheeling Bob Dylan, and then as that album's uh, sort of tone morphed from its original conception, which was Bob Dylan's blues, into what it became, this song got left by the wayside. And it just basically stayed in the vaults uh, for many years. And then, of course, got released on the bootleg series in 1991. And that was where uh, I first heard it. So I quoted the initial uh, lyrics. It continues. It says, there's been rumors of war and wars that have been. The meaning of life has been lost in the wind. And some people thinking that the end is close by. Instead of learning to live, they are learning to die. Let me die in my footsteps before I go down under the ground. So uh, what was it about this song that that made you want to talk about it? Well, you know, one of the things is is what you just alluded to that this was it's it's hard to know exactly, but this is one of the first songs that Dylan ever wrote. Yep. You know, I don't know if it's the fourth or the seventh or the you know it it's possible it's the third, and he says at least that he actually kind of uh, came up with the basic outline a couple of years before he actually wrote it down. But in any case, it's one of the first things he ever wrote. Um, and I think he wrote it at the beginning of 1962. So kind of, you know, very, very early. And yet, as you say, it didn't, uh, you know, I had never heard it until I didn't even hear it first in, in, in 91, because I kind of was, like I said, kind of off. Oh, right. That was your down period. You know, kind of, yeah. uh, And I think, I think the first time I ever heard it was in that Scorsese documentary. Oh, wow. Where it's kind of, he it's it's i'm I'm pretty sure it's in there uh, a few times so it's one of these you know one of the things that as we know is a is a sort of a truism for dylan fans is that often and that's one of the things that has made the uh the bootleg series such a, a a big deal is that often some of the best songs don't have don't appear on albums or often better versions don't appear on albums. And obviously with Dylan, uh, it's always been the case that there are, are very different permutations of songs, right? Almost, almost 
through different songs. They're done, you know, done so differently. So it, it kind of captured something to me about Dylan that again, this is to me, this is a pretty important song and it didn't, it didn't show up until 30 years <laughs> into his career. Um, and I looked into this apparently, you know, it, it actually did show up on some like compilation album that yes. Pete Seeger put together, but it was under a pseudonym. Yes, the, bro- the broadside ballads, and he was right. uh, credited as Blind Boy Grunt on that. Right, so he couldn't, <laughs> so because you know he was under contract to CBS and everything. Um, but that basic point that again, it's literally one of the first songs he ever wrote, and it didn't. It it basically no one heard it. No one was no one knew anything about it until uh, the early nineties. Uh, and I looked it up and actually it's only, he's only performed it once. <laughs> once, yes. You know, and now I'm sure they didn't make, I, I think that thing they have on Dylan's, uh, you know, website is only for kind of, you know, formal performances. I'm yeah, sure there's maybe yeah. like kind of, you know, kind of coffee house stuff maybe yeah. in, in, in Greenwich Village. It did. But in any case, so that was one part of it. Uh, just that weirdness about about the song's history, which which is a, is very Dylan to me, um, and 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 partly you know as 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 you, you and I have discussed sort of off air. One of the re- I, I had a hard time figuring out like what song am I going to talk about, <laughs> right? Because because there's a lot of different songs, and, and um, you know a lot of the big ones have been have been taken already. So I was kind of at a loss, like what what one song and you know there's another part that kind of like well kind of have this one to myself right (laughs) kind of kind of like um but i think the big thing is that this song um resonates with something that has been a basic one of the kind of the core preoccupations of 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 my life and that is um and and which has shown up in various ways uh, in my writing over the years, which is how we live with dignity mm. in an adverse world. Uh, and I have, uh, I've written at various points in, in uh, political contexts that optimism is not, optimism is not a matter of, predicting the future optimism is a is a sort of an ethical posture towards life uh when things are going great you don't have to be optimistic you know just you know things are going great yeah so it it's not about it's not about thinking things are or will be great it's again it's a sort of an ethical posture that one i think should try to bring to life uh even though, as we know, life is very difficult and, and, and is, can be filled with reverses and heartbreak and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and I think that to me, that, that is kind of what this song is about. And, and for, for those who aren't um, familiar with the song and the lyrics, you know, uh, going under the ground kind of has this dual meaning in the song where on the one hand, it's, it's about dying and being buried and the end of our lives. Uh, and it is also about bomb shelters. And so the sort of the, 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 the kind of the fulcrum of the song is people are burying themselves in bomb shelters or preparing to bury themselves in bomb shelters 
before they're even dead. And there's this whole kind of theme of a living death that, um, that the song uh, turns on. And, and that's really the thing kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to die at the moment of my death. I'm not going to live. I'm not going to spend my life in a living death. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be anticipating and burying myself when I still have some portion of life left to live. Um, and, and obviously Dylan, you know, captures that in, in, in a lyrical way, not as a, you know, in, in the sort of the, you know, verbal equivalent of discursive writing, which is what I operate in. But that to me is what the song means. And that, that is, you know, it's just a good song. And again, to me, it's just kind of, it's just kind of weird and cool and weird that kind of like, wow, this is a pretty good song. Why, how, how did it not, how did it not see the light, the light of day for 30 years? Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the thing that that's what's resonates with me because that's something very basic about, about life and how we, and how we choose to live our lives. Yeah, I mean, Bob himself obviously um, had wasn't super keen on it uh, because the other time that he recorded it was for these Whitmark demos that he was doing and from 62 to 64 where he was just producing so much material and he was just demoing these songs for this, for this company. And um, the, a version of this song was released on that box set, the Whitmark demos yep. box set. But he, he stops it halfway through. And uh, he just, and he basically says, he literally says at the end of the song, it's awful long. Well, it's not that long, but it's a drag. <laughs> and so the well, okay, now we know why this never, you know, he only played it live, as you said, just the one time. He obviously at some point felt it was just kind of a bummer song and he decided to leave it by the side of the road. I don't take it to be a bummer song, though. Yeah, I mean, that it's, was it's, in you. It's funny. I'm curious what he means because I would say that, you know, as much as I like the song, the there are certainly parts in the second half where the, you know, where the mood of the song kind of shifts in a way, you know, go out and live life and all that kind of stuff. There's, there's lyrics there that I could see that he felt that they were, young lyrics right they're they're kind of there are parts of them that are kind of exuberant and maybe a little cliche they're not quite there for me but i could you know you could kind of um you know kind of see that right they kind of i think there's there's something a a 21 year old dylan might have written and a 41 or 61 or an 81 year old Dylan would not, would not have written. And I could sort of imagine that even, you know, as your listeners know, his, his, his songwriting was changing so rapidly in that period that I could certainly see that, uh, you know, when, when, when that album was released in 1963, I, you know, I don't have the total timeline in my head, but it's, you know, he's probably a year older when he's kind of thinking about what, you know, when they're thinking about what, uh, what goes on that album. So I could, I could imagine uh, him seeing, you know, seeing that, uh, listening to that song, performing that song, even a year later and saying, uh, you know, kind of, it's a little, you know, because there's the funny, I think it's in, um, 
I think it's in Chronicles. Maybe it's in the Scorsese documentary. I can't remember. But there's, to me, what has always been a very kind of telling line when he describes the first time he listened to his first album. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of mortified. <laughs> and and he said, at least as he recounts it, and you can never know with Dylan whether it is a it is a straight up recounting that he he that he felt kind of mortified. Like he was way past he he was way past what he had done on on that album. And probably some of it was that you know it was all covers. He had more all blah 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 blah. But anyway, that that it could be that. Because again, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, those lyrics don't play that way to me, but they're a little, they do have a youth about them. Mm -hmm. So who knows? Yeah, I mean, completely. I mean, I I think this song's composition predates when he wrote Blown in the Wind, I believe. The time between when he wrote Blown in the Wind and when Blown in the Wind started getting played in coffee houses and then appeared on the record was much more condensed. Yeah, I I think this song is 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 like rec- either recorded or written in like f- January, February, nineteen sixty-two. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's there's, it, it it has to be almost almost earlier than everything. I mean, it's yeah. it, you know, it kind of predates just about everything. The one the one live version as we talked about, he played. It was on J- July second of nineteen sixty-two in Montreal at the Finjan Club. And there's a bootleg of it on YouTube. You can hear it. You oh, really? It. I mean, yeah, you can I'll hear him sing to, it. I'll have to, okay. Yeah, I mean, everything is on YouTube at this point. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. it's funny because there is an extra verse that he sings in that version that is not in the recorded version. Hmm. Um, he, for some reason, he took it out. And that, that verse is, um, if I had rubies and riches and crowns, I'd buy the whole world and change things around. I'd throw all the guns and the tanks in the sea, for they are mistakes of a past history. Let me die in my footsteps before I go down under the ground. And the reason I, I bring up Blown in the Wind. Oh, wait, isn't that the one that is in like the official lyrics? What you just it's read? On, it's on the website, but it's the oh, okay. version on the bootleg series does not have that verse. Got it. Okay. Um, so got he, it. he, you know, very specifically took it out. Right, um, right, right, right. And the reason I, I think about it when saying comparing it to Blown in the Wind is that I feel like both those songs. I mean, this one's obviously more direct about the, the, the bomb shelters. I mean, he's specifically talking about that. And he himself mentioned it once where he said he was watching some bomb shelter be built. And he just sort of said, well, what, geez, why are they spending all this time and money on this to, to, get, to get, dig themselves a grave? And he said that, that was what inspired the song. And But I think about that to me, both songs are talking about a specific problem, but more specifically saying, why why do we accept the way things are why are we accepting that and i could see if he thought that that they were similar thematically and i don't know whether this Mm -hmm. song was bumped for that song right but i could see him saying well these songs are kind of getting at the same thing but blowing in the wind is clearly you know sort of a superior composition because it's blowing in the wind and then this one gets shunted off to the side because as i listen to it to me it's yeah it's about bomb shelters but it really is more about why are we as a society accepting this doom hanging over our heads when why are we questioning why is that why is this why are we right. why are we just okay with this it's funny i you know i thought i i thought i read somewhere that it was bumped for hard rain that would make even more sense too i mean we talk about although it's the, you know thematically you know kind of a very very different song yeah. um but i you know i don't i don't I don't know. 
could be just know. the nuclear combat. You know, the, the 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 overlap of nuclear annihilation was just too much to be like, all right. Yeah, I mean, it's funny though too, because to me, and this goes back to what I was saying before about how a lot of the earlier songs, I, I, I just have a hard time quite accessing them because I've literally listened to them since I was a small child, mm-hmm. right? They are, they are, I don't want to say they become trite, but the repetition, they're, 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 it's hard to hear them for me is new. Um, and to me, with Blowing in the Wind, this this. In some, like in some ways, hard rain is more, it's more stark, more ominous. But to me, this song manages to be very stark and very ominous in a very understated, direct way, and yet is more uplifting to me. So, mm-hmm. I, for whatever reason, this song kind of covers all the bases at once, um, in a way that you know, in a way that works for me. Yeah. I think it's a, a, that it's one I come back to. Yeah. It's a little more up-tempo. His, his vocal is a little more, I'd say Woody Guthrie kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little brighter. Like the, the, there's the verse with the, uh, there's always been people that have to cause fear. They've been talking of the war now for many long years. I've read all their statements and I've not said a word, but now Lord God, let my poor voice be heard. Let me die. My first. To me, that's very, Woody Guthrie yeah. kind of thing. Like just, all right, I've been sitting back. I haven't said anything. I have a voice. I have an instrument. I have a, I have a, a way of getting my message across the way other people do not. Now here's my statement. And it has that kind of, to me, broadness to it mm-hmm. that makes it upbeat. Again, I remember when I listened to this on the bootleg series and I was like, wow, this is, okay, yeah, lyrically kind of a bummer, kind of a drag as Bob says, but the performance is not that. And that's why, yeah. to me, it, it really stays sort of fresh, even though, like you said, we're talking about bomb shelters, who deals with bomb shelters. But I think about, with a lot of Dylan songs, stuff that seems so specific to an era, and then you can say, well, I can transpose it to what's going on now. And, you know, I don't want to drag the conversation too far into, into areas where it doesn't necessarily belong. You know, the song bears the weight of that. But we, of course, right now are living with a lot of horrible stuff in the world. And mm-hmm. in this country, and we're being told that's just the way it is. You right. can't do anything right. better. There's we're never going to get you know guns off the street. Let's get rid of the doors. Right. That's right. just, right. and you all have to live with it. It, may, it reminds me of like again, not to go too far afield, but I remember when I was just old enough that I was off of my parents' medical insurance coverage, and I had to get it on my own. Yeah. And I was introduced to the concept of pre-existing condition. And I remember thinking, well, what the hell is that? Like, I, isn't that what insurance is supposed to be for? And we've just incorporated that into our, into our lives, that that's the thing. And we just kind of shrug and go, oh, okay, they won't cover me because I have a health issue. Well, right. What? Right. what? You know, and we as Americans just live with it because it's been drilled into our heads for so long. That's just the way it is. And, you know, some, you know. Some, something you said about, about Guthrie, I, another thing that kind of occurs to me about this song, and it's something I've, I've thought before, haven't quite uh, thought of it in terms of his negative reaction to the song, which I wasn't, which I hadn't really fully absorbed that I could, that, that again, it doesn't 
read that way to me, but it is a song in its structure and its performance and a lot of the sort of the visual imagery in the second half of, in the second half of the song that you could read as derivative of Guthrie, mm-hmm. that, that, that these are songs where he's still kind of doing very good Guthrie songs, right? Cause he's a really talented guy, but he's not going in a new direction. Now, again, it doesn't, doesn't feel that way to me, but there's a lot there where you could make that interpretation. And I wonder if that's another, another kind, you know, cause that's how a whole thing you kind of, you know, you, you get out into the West and all the, <laughs> yeah. all the, the lushness of America and, and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, it's very Guthrie. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Oh yeah. The, I mean, the penultimate verse, uh, let me drink from the waters where the mountain streams flood. Let the smell of wildflowers flow through, through my blood. Let me sleep in your meadows with the green grassy leaves. Let me walk down the highway with my brother in peace. I mean, that's like a WPA poster. I mean, yeah. it really yeah. is. Yeah. It's no, so... it's very, it, it's very Guthrie. And, and you could, so you could sort of see that he was feeling like, okay, I, I'm a little, I'm a little past that, you know, I'm a little, little past that. Yeah, and especially again, if you look at the the other songs on the bootleg series that are from this point, the, the sort of volume one of the volume three, so many of the songs on that set are the more direct Guthrie pastiches, like Pads of Victory. That's a Woody Guthrie. That's that's his own version of a Woody Guthrie song. And so, yeah, it mm-hmm. could be that he is like, yeah, I, he was happy to be the Woody Guthrie jukebox as he called himself, but he was developing so rapidly that maybe, yeah, he didn't want such a direct connection. To that because obviously like hard rain's gonna fall that's not a woody guthrie song i mean right, it's got some right, it's got right. some historical antecedents but that's his own that's a bob dylan song it's not a yeah you know woody guthrie thing but yeah that again that that uh that penultimate verse is just a very sort of positive and like look how great america is look how great this world is look, there's grassy greens and there's meadows and you know i can breathe the air why do i want to why do i want to live underground in a in a cement bunker when there's all this out there you know, what are you talking right. about? Right, um, right. And then the, the last verse, where he says, go out in your country where the land meets the sun, see the craters and the canyons where the waterfalls run. Again, continuing that. Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, Idaho. Let every state in this union seep deep down in your souls. And then he changes it from, let me die in my footsteps before I go down under the ground too. And you'll die in your footsteps before you go down under the ground. And it's one of... It's my favorite moment in the song because the line is, you know, you'll die, which is, you know, inherently sounding kind of grim. But the way he sings it, it's defiant and it's uplifting to me. And yet it's yeah. the complete opposite of what the line, you know, on paper, you'll die in your footsteps. Boy, that's kind of a bummer. But he sings it like you are, you're making your stand, you know, you're like, that's, I'm defying what the society's telling me to do. And it's incredibly uplifting and it never fails to kind of catch me in my throat a little bit when he sings it. Cause it's so powerful. And you get based on his vocal performance. Yeah. Yeah. No, again, it's, I've never, I, I have, um, I have never experienced it as a downer song. Yeah. Um, and well, I think I've already sort of described why that, you know why that is yeah, but but as you say a lot a huge amount of it is 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 the is you know embodied in the performance yeah, yeah you know yeah. kind of what the what the song's about and everything 
Yeah, he was able to sort of project and make it big and sound like just again more like a statement of, "Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go with the flow here. I'm going to mm-hmm. stand and I'm going to make my message, and this is what it is." Now, it's interesting is that I mean, despite his comments on the Whitmark demo, it's kind of a drag. There is a very brief clip of him in the 1965 six documentary "Don't Look Back," where he sings this song. And he he uh, he starts singing it. I mean, I've seen that documentary. Yeah, it goes by very fast. And uh, of all, again, people find this stuff on YouTube. Apparently, there is a longer clip of that scene. I don't know where this person found it because I've never seen any deleted scenes from that documentary. But like it, like an outtake, like the, the rest. Oh, interesting. And he he doesn't remember the words, and he just hums it. But he is singing it. It's it's him on a bed with Joan Baez, and I guess it's, maybe it's Donovan. I think is the is mm-hmm. sitting there with him, and they're <laughs> laughing and they're having a good time. And he looks like he is enjoying himself, and and he's able to again. He doesn't recall the words, but he knows the early refrain, and he's like, hmm, 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 hmm. and he's laughing, and ha- and it's like, wow, okay, he's reconnecting with this song, and it'll you know time the timeline wise, it's the last time he'd ever really engage with it, as far as we know publicly. Right. Right, but it, right. that was so cute to see him. Maybe not cute is right the word, but it's charming. I thought to see huh. him pull this out of the out of the memory bank. Right after right. he probably hadn't sung it in two years, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, okay." And of all the songs they kind of get to, it's this one. That's right, the one that right. they do. It's very funny. Now that's that's the Mazels one, right? That that that's uh, Dave Pennebaker. Oh, Pennebaker, right? I yeah. Get these, yeah. Get these people confused. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I guess there, there's. Uh, I guess the raw footage is, it has to be out there. You know, who I knows guess, where people yeah. get these things. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I mean, I never looked at it again. I have it on, you know, I have it like on DVD. Yeah. I never, uh, you know, I always think, Oh, there must not be anything available. And then I plug Bob Dylan name of song into YouTube and good Lord, you know, where did they find this? You know, where did the, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I did look up that he, yeah, he did sing this song uh, at some house performances and some hoot nannies. And right, things like right. that but those were not you know the bob dylan.com sort of is like official like paid yeah, performance it's yeah it's not yeah it of, wasn't yeah. like a concert it was he was just playing it for his friends but it was well, even part- where there's like a, an official set list you know yeah. it's, it's even right. kind of interesting to I me mean, like it wouldn't it wouldn't be totally obvious to me to like do the set lists all exist from from like <laughs> even like ticketed performances from like 1962 and 1963 apparently so yeah yeah people were documenting this guy yeah. i mean they knew early yeah. got to document yeah. this guy and, and and record it so yeah they said it's a, it's a terrific song it's one of the uh the bootlegs well let me ask you about the the bootleg series here like when you got you, you didn't get that set at the time like you talked about they said you were you were kind of you know not not as following you know, you know, as you know it's funny people people still you know people i knew my in in my friends and family uh still thought of me as a big dylan fan and i certainly thought of myself as a big dylan fan so when i was actually uh i was gifted a number of the early bootleg things oh. and i just kind of didn't get to listening to them um <laughs> so but but certainly i did not i did not really listen to m- kind of any of the much of any of the bootleg stuff until you know i don't know sometime around 2006 7 mm-hmm. you know sometime around there 2005 6 7 did it recontextualize what you thought about him because for for me it did it, it i mean as much as i loved the records and then i started hearing 
my God, there is just as much good material that he left off. And it made me, it didn't make me like the records less, but it, it, it made me realize, man, there is, there is, it is like the literally the proverbial tip of the iceberg. You know, it's like as good yeah. as these records are, there's four other classics that he did for this record that he left behind. I mean, did you have that kind of realization when you, when you started hearing those sets? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I, I, I think so. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure what I had thought exactly. You know, it's funny now that I, now that I think about it, you know, one of the, one of the early things, I think both these dads had basement tapes. Ah, and those were actually, that was, now that I'm just kind of remembering this, that was the first Dylan stuff I really heard. Um, and that, I think, you know, I heard that those albums a lot. I, those two LP, you know, double, al- double, double album. I heard those a lot. And, and, it, and I just, just kind of occurred to me when you said that, because... In a lot of ways, the basement tapes, even though it's kind of clear now they were sort of basemented up for, you know, to kind of as part of the packaging in a yeah. way to kind of, you know, scuff them a bit, and make them sound a little more, a little more, um, you know, bootleggy than, than the actual recordings were. That's more the kind of the bootleg Bob Dylan, that mm-hmm. there's kind of a lot of stuff in the mix and a lot of it kind of raw and trying different, you know, just the way that, you know, one of the things, one of the things that kind of came out to me from the bootleg series stuff is just a lot of songs are very different versions of them. And often it's not the version on the album that I think is, is the best one. Right. Um, So in some ways for me, I don't know, the basement tapes, you know, it's certainly not, I don't think many people would think that, uh, you know, Dylan's 1960s production was highly produced, but it's certainly highly produced compared, you know, the base, again, basement tapes are just this kind of subterranean kind of raw experimental thing. And I guess... And again, I hadn't I hadn't thought about this until you until you asked me that question. But um, to me, I, I guess what I kind of taken from a lot of the basement tape stuff is that a lot of that stuff was going on kind of throughout the process, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the whole period. Um, and the, with with the bootleg, you're kind of getting all this different stuff, and a lot of it kind of you know, I keep coming back to that thing. There's better versions of the songs, a lot of them to my, you know, to my thinking, um, you know, and it's something else this isn't directly related, but it, it I, I keep coming back to, and I've been, I've been kind of on a, a deep dive with some other favorite act, acts of mine recently, but something Dylan says in some interview, and he's, he said it, he said it, um, different times in different ways. And, uh, you know, with all the Dylan self myth-making, I think this is basically true that you're writing these songs because you want to perform these songs. Mm-hmm. And at some level, that's a truism, but you know, there's, I think a lot of us who don't compose and sing songs think you're writing a song because you want to write a really good song. 
And if you write a really good song, you're famous and you make money and everybody thinks you're great and all this kind of stuff. But this thing that, again, Dylan has said in a number of times, it kind of like, I wanted to sing that song. So I needed to write it to be able to sing it because no yep. one else had written it. Yep. Um, and that gives a whole kind of, you know, if, if someone is a, is, a, is a performer, this, you know, probably not as alien to them, but as someone who's not, kind of puts the whole thing in a certain, you know, you kind of understand things in a, in a, in a, in a different way. And um, that puts in a little more of a revealing relief why there's a lot of different versions. Mm-hmm. Because you wrote it to perform it, and 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 you perform it countless times, you're kind of you're going to want to do different things with it, yeah. Because you're a lot of these people, and again, it's 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 a total truism. And again, for someone who's a performer, I'm sure they get this. But it it, it some things you only some things that are very obvious you only kind of really get after hearing it a hundred million times and um, that a lot of these people, not all the people that we, we like their stuff, but a lot of these people, they're performers and they're songwriters because they want it. That's what they want to perform. In some ways, I think like the Beatles were different. I think they were more song- songwriters. Hmm. You know, you look at, you know, I don't want to go off on a different tangent, but uh um, you know, I think like the Rolling Stones are more like Bob Dylan in that hmm. way. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I you know, I've done a, a lot of writing over my life, but I don't think of myself as a writer. I have written because I needed something to be written and who else is going to do it for me? You know what I mean? So like, I got to do it. And mm-hmm. that's interesting that Bob looked at it that way. Like, well, I want to sing this type of song but this type of song does not exist. Well, then I guess I have to write it now, you know, okay, luckily, I mean, that's probably underselling it a little. We like, we know that Bob likes to think of himself as a craftsman almost more than, you know, kind of artistic genius, but who wants to think of themselves in that, in that context anyway. But uh, it's, it's kind of fun that he's like, well, all right, I'll just craft the thing I need to sing. Okay. Yeah. It's, 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 there's definitely that whole kind of, Oh, I barely, I only accidentally started right. You know, there's a, there's a lot of myth making there, but I think the part that is not myth making is that he and a lot of other great performers see themselves as performers. Yeah. That's, that's their thing. And you're writing the songs because you want to perform in different ways. And if the song doesn't exist, you have to write it. Uh, anyway, that's my, that's what I've sort of drawn from, from, that that repeated refrain that comes up in various interviews over the years with him. I think yeah. it's even in, in Chronicles, maybe something like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, he's 81 and he's still doing how many dates per day? I mean, this is obviously because he wants to be there. He thinks of him, that's him as his performer life because he doesn't need the money. He doesn't yeah. need the fame, but he's out there. He's out there right now. He played just last night, you know what I mean? So, I mean, that's that's what he thinks So. Well, uh, it's been, you know, marvelous, uh, Josh, to talk to you again. I, I've been reading Talking Points Memo for uh, almost a quarter century now, and then every time you would drop in a Dylan reference, it always feels like, ooh, that's, I'm, I'm picking up something maybe other people aren't picking up. <laughs> that's awesome. It always makes me feel great about that. So, uh, and so this, is, this is a terrific song. I, you know, it, it is a shame that it never got an unveiling until 1991 for Pete's sakes, but 
that's the that's the the way of being a Dylan fan. It's just a you know he just leaves it by the side of the road. Yeah, and uh, there it is. You know, just, absolutely, it's, it's just in his back absolutely. pages. So um, before we sign off here, I want to ask you the standard question I ask everybody that's on the show. So if there is any album session or sessions of Dylan's that you could have sat in on, and you know, I don't. Some people interpret this in very H.G. Um, Wells terms, like, "Oh, could I go back in time and talk to Bob?" And other people are more like, "Well, they're just somehow like a ghost, and they're watching it happen." Mm-hmm. Uh, what what album do you think you would want to sit in on? What do you think would you would find the most interesting, illuminating, or just plain fun to sit there and watch get created in front of? Before, before I answer that, let me, let me, you know, you said to go back and talk to Bob. I'll give you like a brush with greatness here. Oh. Um, I, about a decade ago from mutual friends, I kind of, uh, struck up an acquaintance with, with Dylan's manager. Ah, okay. Right? Jeff Kramer? Uh, no, it's. Or the other it's, guy, with one of the other guys. Okay. It's, what is it? It's. He's got a whole team that, uh. Well, this is the guy, the main the guy who kind of manages every, you know, in, in any case, it's, yeah. you know, they've got this office over in Gramercy or whatever. Maybe I'm forgetting his name. I thought it was Jeff something else. In any case. Uh, so I'm over there one time and I got a, I got an early listen to Tempest, right? They kind of, wow. he had me over, you can listen to, you know, I mean, a few weeks or a month or, you know, not like <laughs> when it was still in production or something like that, <laughs> but a little cool. ahead of, you know, whatever. And so I'm there in his office talking to him and he's saying, you know, he's kind of telling me how bad, how bad streaming is and everything. And, uh, he gets a call and the, and the, some woman's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's Bob. And, and he said, uh, can can you, can, can you go out? Can you go out, out of the office? I got to talk to Bob. And I'm like, okay, sure, 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 sure. Don't worry, don't worry. But you know, I'm so into Dylan. I was like honored, right? I was, I was kicked out of the office so he could talk to Bob. Um, so on, the, on this thing, um, God, good question. Um, you know, I probably would have wanted to be on one, I lose track of which, which, but you know, one of the pre blonde on blonde sessions that they recorded down in Nashville. Right. One of those. Uh, or maybe one of the, you know, Jerry Wexler. Uh, oh, the Slow Train pro- Coming. Yeah, uh, produced Slow Train Coming. And then, wait, was he also was he also involved with Saved? I can't remember. But one of the Christian ones, because mm. that was just such a weird scene. Um, <laughs> that, you know, kind of those two, you know, but I, I have no idea. I'd be like, you know, I, I, I'd be sort of bashful and wouldn't want to get in the way. Right. right so I sure, even, sure. You know, I, I don't, I, I probably some people envision themselves like hanging with Bob and like, you know, smoking a joint or something, but I can't, I can't quite get there. So, but those are the ones that kind of, <laughs> you know, that, 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 uh, you, you know, drive some kind of curiosity for me, just, just in, for different reasons in those cases, like kind of like I got a few questions, kind of curious what, <laughs> <laughs> what this or that was like, what was going on and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, those are, I guess the ones that I would come up with. Yeah. There's no wrong answer. It's how people interpret it. Some people have said the Woolberries cause they get to hang with a beetle as well. Other people have said the basement tapes cause it's three months or four months, you know, it's the most amount you're going to get other people. Yeah. So everyone has their own particular 
sort of point of view. I will tell you, I, maybe you know the story, and if, and if I do, stop me before we wrap up here. But have you ever heard that story about the, 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 the contretemps with recording Forever Young when he did Planet Waves? You know the no. story? No. Okay. So you know, you know that there's two versions of Forever mm-hmm. Young on Planet Waves. There's the slow one and the fast one. So apparently, and this is in a book uh, that I read, and now it's, it's a lot of people know it. And it's my favorite story of just, what the hell? So he records the slow version, right? And it's beautiful and stirring and, and everyone. So according to the engineer, I think the guy named was Rob Fraboni. He says, well, Bob's done. And everyone was just quiet because they were so stunned. They just were like, wow, we just heard something brilliant. And so no one said anything. They just kind of were like, well, all right. And the session ended and Bob like went to a movie across the street or something. And so later, this guy, the engineer, is putting together like the master reels and he says, I start grabbing the master reel for that version of Forever Young. I didn't even ask Bob. Of course we're going to use it. It's brilliant. And Bob goes, we're not going to use that. And <laughs> this Fraboni guy goes, what are you talking about? We're not going to use it. What are, you, what, what are you nuts? And Bob said that according to him, in the sometime between the recording it and this, a friend had come by and his girlfriend had heard the track and said, geez, Bob, you're getting mushy in your old age. And that made oh, Bob shit. say, we're not going to use it. And I thought to myself, you're lucky enough to sit in on a session of Bob Dylan and you're good. You're, this is your opportunity to dunk on him. Right. Really? I never heard that. I've never heard that. Like, so that was you, the compromise having doing both. They, well, a bit, they talked him out of it. They eventually said, no, no, no. You know, and he, I guess he, you know, but the, to think that someone would feel so comfortable to say, geez, Bob, that's kind of, you know, what are you doing? Like, what are you out of your mind? Like, what right, 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 I right. Been, I'd be in the corner. I'd be like, I guess I can say anything. I don't want to bump it. I don't want to knock anything over. What are you crazy? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's crazy. So, um, well, anyway, Josh, I, thank you so much for doing this. It was a real Absolutely, honor. absolutely. Um, like I said, I, I've been reading TPM and I listen to your podcast regularly. Um, it's depressing a lot of times, but that's <laughs> the world we, we live in. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell people about the, people know about Talking Points Memo, but why don't you tell people about the, the podcast? Uh, well, we have a weekly podcast that I do with one of my colleagues, Kate Riga. Uh, and we basically just kind of talk over the things that have happened in, in, you know, in the news the last week. It's, it's, it's not a, you know, not a scripted thing. It doesn't have, we don't do interviews. We just kind of discuss, uh, you know, the, the what's what's happening and um i think we've gotten in a, in a kind of a good groove and i think one of the interesting things i think one of the things that works um about it as a podcast is you know obviously we're both immersed in the news and we have ideas and they may be good ideas or not good ideas but i think one of the interesting things is that uh you know i'm a guy in his early 50s Kate is a woman, probably in her mid twenties. So there's also this kind of generational thing <laughs> that we're, you know, we're kind of coming from. I'm not sure we're coming from, you know, different places, but these are very different perspectives, and I and I think that kind of, um, I think that gives a kind of a liveliness and a spark to the to our discussions because those these are very different perspectives on our on our current politics and. Uh, We've been doing this podcast for God. I guess it's it's probably going on f- about four years. And originally, we did it with there was another 
you know, try host or whatever, uh, who, who moved on to an, a, a job in another organization. So then it was uh, Kate and I. And, uh, you know, we're really in a groove. So check it out. It's, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I like how it, I like the, I like the pace. And I think it's, you know, people are, uh, you know, as Trump would say, people are, what is it? People are paying attention more many and more. Are saying, yeah, yeah many really. people are saying or something like that. So yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's good. And Kate is, Kate is, is, is really a rising star. And so, you know, I'm kind of, I'm blessed to be able to kind of, you know, participate in her trajectory and her, and and uh, all the all the great things she's doing and will do in her career. So it's a, it's a it's a fun thing. It really is. Um, it's a, whenever you drop one, it's the first thing we listen to in the morning while we're while we're working. And so I, I will just say, you know, the fact that Kate can get quotes from Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema and not have an aneurysm <laughs> says a lot about her internal fortitude. Because yes, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. <sighs> no, she's great. Lord, she's great. Lord. So uh, okay. Well, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice and i got to thank our sponsors over on patreon robert ward steve cronin max hutzel george doherty rocky meckle paul ruther and henry bernstein thanks so much guys for the support so that's going to do it thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later bye 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 this film will show you what you may expect in shelter living it will examine important principles of sanitation and hygiene which if adhered to will mean that you can emerge from an abnormal period of crowded living more than just alive. Instead, ready and physically able to work with your neighbors to restore your normal way of life.